I'd like to walk in with you to the show Strange Bodies, and I uh, would very much enjoy it being a dialogue. And I'm going to talk not only about um, the big man, which is in the back, which allows us to move from the back forward, but I'm also um, eager to speak uh, somewhat randomly about different works in the show. Um, I'm going to make the assumption, and I think it's partially accurate, that you're all both informed and knowledgeable, but at the same time, it's my understanding, how many of our group here are docents? If you'd raise your hand. A little bit higher so I can see. So you got one, two, three, four docents. Okay. Um, I had thought in advance that there might be more docents here, and it is part of what I'd like to talk to you about, not only about the big man, but about um, ways of seeing art that I think can be helpful when we try to share it with other people. In that regard, uh, the Hirshhorn Museum is enormously important to, I think, me personally, and I believe to the community, because it does allow us to look at things that initially may not be obvious and to bring a way of seeing, a way of thinking that's uh, enormously challenging. And I think that kind of thinking is really important, not just in um, the world of art, but um, <clears throat> in solving life's bigger problems outside the museum. And I believe that great art, and there's an enormous amount of great art here in the Hirshhorn and also in Washington, really has that ability to take us to a, another level. So when I was thinking that this would be a group composed more of the docents, one of the things that Peter Sheldahl, and a very informed, knowledgeable art critic and poet, I might add, said when a docent asked him recently at a lecture at the National Gallery, what advice do you have for docents? Uh, his reply was, you know, I don't think it's necessary to give all that art historical background. I'm not saying that you can't offer it in support of what you're thinking. He said, what I really believe is important is that you care about what you're talking about because that enthusiasm will come through to the people you're speaking with and is a much more valuable um, tool with which you can then communicate. So I'm going to start off with a work that I find, e I'm very enthusiastic about this work, so much so as a small aside, I should tell you that after I rotated off the chairmanship, um, I was offered to have a work associated with my name to recognize uh, my work on the board and as the uh, chairman, and I chose the big man. And I was being somewhat facetious uh, because the role, I thought, of the chairman was sort of being the big man, but of course it refers to this enormously powerful uh, sculpture by Ron Muick. Um, you probably all know, so forgive me for repeating, that there is a very interesting duality in the way we look at objects of art. And I'm going to oversimplify it by describing the difference between subject matter and content. Now, the subject matter of the show are strange bodies. And we can see that the emotional content of different approaches to making images of the human form can be enormously varied and different in its tone, in its materials, and in many other fashions. This man is, as it turns out, Ron Muick is a sculptor working, he's a native Australian working 
in London. And he got a fellowship to work at the National Gallery of London, where he was given a small studio in this enormous classical uh, building. And he was asked if he wanted to work with a model. He had never before worked with models. He had worked solely out of his imagination. And he decided he would try it. And the man portrayed here was his model. And he told me that he spent almost two hours, Ron Muick said, I spent two hours trying to pose my model in some kind of way that made me want to do a sculpture. And he was getting no success. So he said to this man who was completely naked, as art models often are. He said, you know what, let's take a break, and we'll come back to it in 15 minutes. And so the man sat down in this pose, and Ron Muick turned around and said, that's it. That's the pose I want to do. Now, I think we can see that there is this enormous contrast between the power suggested by the scale of this work as well as, I mean, it's larger than life. Of course, this man stands up, and he's probably something like 12 to 18 feet tall. So we've got a giant. But even if it was done at full size, this is a big man, a very big man. And big, sometimes size matters, suggests power. And yet what we see here in this pose is an enormously contemplative and Potentially, I think, and here's where each one of us brings our own interpretation to a work, a very slightly troubled, slightly anxious, slightly disturbed aura coming out of the individual. And so what we have is this, uh, this contrast, this push-pull going on between the implied power of the big man and the vulnerability Vulnerability both in terms of being without clothes, being naked, being seen as one is. Vulnerability in terms of not appearing to be a master of the universe and control of the circumstances of the situation. And I think it is in that metaphorical range that Ron Muick's sculptures and his art gain their enormous presence and their power. There are a number of other sculptors, and out of politeness, I'm not going to name them, but many of us know who they are, who have used the technique of what Jim Dimitrian, the former director here, described to me as verisimilitude. And I would ask Jim, why does that sculpture that is absolutely perfect in terms of representing something fail as a work of art? And his answer to me was verisimilitude, which is to say that while it got the subject matter right, perfect, down to the last degree, the emotional content underneath it didn't have a compelling or convincing sense of presence that then gave the work its additional meaning. So I think that what makes Ron's work so powerful is that he is consciously dealing with the human condition, which is this big two words, human condition, this big concept, but he does it in an enormously sensitive way. And he juxtaposes size. Sometimes his works are very small, half size. Sometimes, perhaps even more often, they are way oversized. But what he's getting at, and what I think makes his work enormously special, is the variables 
that come up in each of our lives when we are dealing with the day-to-day. Now, in that regard, when I was thinking that this was a talk for docents, one of the things that I think it's really important for all of us to understand is that you know, when you look at art, an enormous additional amount of information than you actually think you might know. Now, there are some people in this group that I'm very privileged to have that are staff members here and are trained experts and have spent decades, scores of years, understanding art, learning how to talk about it, learning how to see it, learning how to verbalize it, learning how to communicate it, writing about it, the people that, in fact, did this show. There are others here that perhaps don't have that breadth or length of experience, but what I find fascinating is that the human organism has a pre-verbal consciousness that when you see things, you know so much more than you actually are conscious of at any one moment. And you take it in emotionally and you take it in in a lot of different ways. And when people are not comfortable looking at art, which is often the case, and you could point me to any number of works in this exhibition, some of which I know and some of which I don't, and I will have differing levels of comfort and familiarity and ideas. But what I think is enormously helpful, particularly at the entry level, if you're ever working as a communicator with other people, is to ask people what they see. Because if you actually describe what you see in a quiet and calm way, what comes out of that is this enormous broader range. The tip of the iceberg goes both deep and wide. And when you access that under the water aspect of it, you, I think, will find as art educators and as art appreciators that things come forward that you might not initially have thought you knew that become an issue. And in that regard, um, if there are any questions about this, I'd be happy to talk more about this. But given that we're only supposed to be here for another 15 or 20 minutes, I'd also be happy to move to other works in the show. Does anybody want to sort of add or subtract? No questions then I am failing miserably no, as a talker. <laughs> no, okay, no questions. I mean, there's, go ahead. Actually, no, I was just to say you're not failing miserably. I think that, for me anyway, uh, it takes a few more moments to really experience this individually. If I'm focusing on you mm -hmm. and hearing what you're saying, I'm not focusing on the piece and having my experience that's both sensory and, as you said, emotional, and I think that was very strong statement because we do experience any art immediately as a sensory experience and then we begin to filter it and sometimes with a with a sculpture like this it is the quiet and approaching the piece that either moves you past your immediate response to understanding and making those connections. Uh, so I wouldn't think that you failed by just asking oh. you <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's, that's a good point. And it brings up another thing. There's, a, there's another comment here. Well, I, I, I agree with that, and I think that's a very, I think it's an interesting and also in many ways a profound observation because 
what you just said about art freezing a moment in time, it's not just this piece that's frozen in its representational verisimilitude, but I think all art freezes a moment in time and preserves the combination of both the subject matter, which is fixed, but then the emotional content of what has been created, the life of the artist poured into the expression. And there are so many different ways, as we see around here, that that expression can be realized, that the diversity of possibilities of how we relate to the objects are as broad, not only as the number of people that look at it. You bring your experience to the art, and then your experience complements informs and completes that sense of it. And one of the things that I think is enormously special about all art is what you just said, which is that it does freeze a moment in time forever. None of us have that luxury in our real lives, but we re-experience that luxury when we look at art. And it ties into what you said about needing time to be able to absorb something. And what's more, that time can be decades or a whole lifetime. If you were to come back to this piece five years from now, what you would bring to it would be fuller, potentially richer, potentially changed. If you had a horrible experience with a big man, it might change your, your reaction to the work. Um, and so there is the fourth element in experiencing art that you're describing, which is time, and which you're describing, which is time transfixed into a, a, a single moment that I think is an enormously rare experience. And I think that most people don't, don't talk about the preciousness of that contemplative experience. And that's one of the things that I think we get out of looking at art in general, and it's specifically looking at art that is um, here in our community. And I want to mention to the entry level um, the docent people who are dealing with entry level, that there's this other aspect of fear. And it's a very interesting thing. If you don't know what's going on or you think that you're not informed, it immediately makes you feel a little bit stupid. And anytime somebody feels stupid, they get afraid and then they freeze. And so when I'm talking to people, particularly on an entry level, I try to make sure that they understand that their reactions to the works of art are every bit as informed and interesting, valuable, and credible as the most sophisticated analysis might bring to them. And what I found that that does is it relaxes people a little bit not to think, oh, well, I could do that, or my son can do that, or are you kidding me? And they put those judgments slightly to the side and then begin this dialogue. So it's the dialogue that I think um, in, allows us to, to build a richer sense. And remember that the Mona Lisa in Leonardo da Vinci's bathroom, which is where he was said to have kept it, was a very different painting than as we now understand it in the Louvre because, because over time, artworks develop meanings. Meanings in terms of social context, meanings in terms of where the work has been seen in the communities and how people respond to it. So it is us, the art viewing public, that complement. And of course, that's the idea that, as you all probably know, Duchamp 
brought to making of art this change that it is not just the artist that hands down the word from on high, but it is the dialogue between the viewer and the object that then gives the art the additional depth. So with that kind of preface, go ahead. I love entry level questions. It's a three part question. Okay. Okay, uh, I think I can take that, but since the curator's here, if I miss it, then I'm gonna get the curator's uh, answer. First, the piece has to be installed with its back against the wall, because unknown to you, the back of this piece is not finished. So the artist's in, uh, intention was to make sure that it was always installed into a corner. Now that makes a very interesting psychological statement that somebody is off in a corner. It creates an emotional valence around a work. So that's my first, and I think that answers, the second answer would be the curator, who is, Kristen, are you the curator? So Kristen here uh, is the person that decided which corner that the work would be installed in and how it would be juxtaposed with other works. Any other um, thoughts or observations? You know, one thing that's brought up was about the, about the frozen moment and also how much time it takes to look at an artwork. And I find that with realism, you think, okay, well, it's realistic. What else do I need to really, how much more time do I need to spend with it? But I do find that every time I look at this, I also find my imagination goes into play. And that imagination is filling in the blanks in some ways for me. But what's so strange is you think, well, you know, why would I even need my imagination? Because it's so realistic, right? But I think what I do is I, I fill in the thoughts with my imagination. And that's what keeps it, keeps me keep looking at, at the big man. And I don't know, have other people had that experience? Yeah. yeah. Um, go ahead. I actually wrote a question for you, John, that I Oh, great, Clark. <laughs> Keep it long. Maybe thoughtful, but 
not that he's so big, he's threatening, like he's going to beat you up, but the fact that he's so big and the fact that his features are exaggerated at the same time, this is a highly, highly, highly skilled artist who has put this level of realism on it that is so effective, and the two are at odds. And the fact that they stay separate from each other, you have to put them together in your own mind for the power of the... I was at American Art recently, and it looks quite comic. And I remember when, you know, and the difference between the Dwayne Hansen, where they're sitting around with clothes on and so on, and how that looks like mannequins, and, and what this artist has done to use non-real things in a real context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Clark, and one could also uh, draw by a contrast, and we don't want to speak anything less than favorably about other artists, and um, uh, John D'Andrea is an artist that made the nude, but he repeated only the models, and they did not have the interest in the emotional content, whether you view the emotion as anger or just being uh, anxious. Um, th those are the dynamics that I think make the piece come out. And so in some regards, looking at representational objects can require in its own way more time. And if you don't believe that, I recommend you spend a little bit of time with a Vermeer to get a sense of how representation can be enormously rewarding if you give it uh, time. Now, the mention of the surrealist juxtaposition is certainly supported by Kristen's enormously thoughtful um, choice of these works, which I think all trade in this little corner on varying affinities with the notion of the surrealist sensibility. The uh, picture here, which is a Magritte, um, is obviously very unequivocally surrealist and deals with the form. I am not going to try to tell you what this um, painting does but we can all free associate. One thing that we see that it does, quite literally, is that it makes the body divided up into different segments and then juxtaposes the sky also into different segments with these building blocks suggested uh, by the squares that are up in and behind the clouds and then juxtaposes somehow strangely the one part of the uh, painting that seems less um, surreal is the candle, which is done with some level of representational accuracy, and then juxtaposing the enormous power of the female body as uh, a single motivating figure in art history uh, with this candle, which is another image, as it were, of, of the flickering light of life. Now, <clears throat> if we move over to Balthus, um, and this Balthus uh, is, we've been told, offered as a uh, juxtaposition in terms of two younger people, and then here the John Kern. And frankly, this John Kern is a picture that I've never understood. From the moment I saw it initially until even now, it, it, it mystifies me what this is about. We know, of course, that the uh, change in the body's proportions is in its own way both slightly surreal and off-putting and related to the historical antecedents of Lucas Cranach, who did these eaves in the Garden of Eden type figures. 
And yet there is something very awkward, particularly in my opinion, with this tree, this truncated double trees, obviously echoing the two figures that are in front of the trees, and the coloring of those trees, almost suggesting some very strange and no longer flourishing as it has been cut off at so many different points. Um, there is, of course, in the history of both art and religion, the image of woman as tree of life. That's a nurturing presence, the earth mother. Perhaps that's a subconscious reference. I'm, I'm just guessing myself whether that might have any relevance at all to this picture. I'd actually be grateful for any help that someone in this audience would like to offer about this picture in which we have these seemingly classic nudes in this very unclassical uh, combination. Well, let's hear your interpretation. That's, that's what we're here for. When I look at this, I see, I see the first thing that I saw was the colonists of the women's bellies, and it suggests to me that they're pregnant. I see the pink tree as being a phallic symbol, and I see the fact that the, that the edges are chopped off as showing there, that there's no particular growth except in the woman now. I, I would say that even for me, this is a very feminist and very sexist approach to it, but I think it's a very, and the women seem to be very happy, very content, extremely happy, they're glowing. And I would say that to some degree, and women who have had this experience can verify it or not, I think it's a very personal representation of a happy, pregnant woman. <laughs> who really is fulfilled within herself, and there are two of them. So I'll turn that, I have, I have not had children, and so it's very, very personal to me, but I, it also no. is a very, to me it's a very strongly sexual set of images. Well, I, I wouldn't quibble with anything, uh, I, I wouldn't quibble with anything that was just um, offered. Um, I would also say that the um, installation that we see on the entry would echo the fact that in portraiture, Artists um, have used symbolic references to what would be undeniably phallic in their general shifts in any number of ways, uh, both literal and um, somewhat uh, abstract. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's um, as good and as dynamic a response as, as I could certainly offer. Um, I'd like to go to a, another work that's in the far corner that's by Ed and Nancy Keenholtz, um, and try to talk to you about that. And this is a work that will take a certain amount of time for you to take it in. Okay, yeah, I, I figured that, but just take one quick. So as, as you walk by it, notice what's on the back side of the sculpture, sculpture being three-dimensional. Um, it is relevant to our understanding. Um, so we're looking at a sculpture called In the Infield was Patty Picavi, made by Ed and his wife Nancy Keenholz. And it is very much part of the uh, tradition, as you see, of tableau, in which we are brought into the experience of a room 
a very ordinary room in its um, basic, what you see is a bed, and it's not a very expensive bed. It's almost like a boarding house, very old-fashioned, what you might perhaps discover in Europe, in Berlin, where the Keenholzes, I believe, made this piece. But in any event, there is this contemplative figure sitting on a bed looking at the literal and I believe metaphorical spiral of light with a picture of a sleeping child above the bed suggesting again the passage of time. We can only guess whether that child is this woman's child or her when she was younger or any other interpretation is as meaningful. And on the other side of the uh, sculptural tableau are a series of hands holding a religious symbol, a crucifix. And I think what this sculpture is trying to suggest is that there is an inherent loneliness in the human condition in which we ultimately all are on our own, whether we are connected to our own past, happy or otherwise, whether we're connected to our family, when you finally get down to it, what you're left with is you looking at the light of life in whatever fashion you can. I think this work is both poignant in identifying that quality of loneliness, but I also think in a very strange way it has a hopefulness because the light is on and we have the opportunity to look at it, and that's the great gift. And so I am going to um, be happy to stay and answer questions about this particular work. But I want to thank everyone that came here for shining your own light into the world of looking at art and supporting that process and sharing it with others and sharing your time with me today. And I'm very grateful for the privilege to uh, talk to you.